thank you very much for welcoming us here. Uh, it was great that you also uh, received Jason last week. As Steve says, I lead the church in Whitney and also oversee a team across West Oxfordshire that's uh, leading four churches there. But at one time of this parish, so uh, yes, I was a member of the church here in Oxford for a couple of years back in the late 90s. Um, but uh, I want to talk to, talk to address the subject this morning of God Looks After Us. Well, this is the title that I've been given, Promises of Provision. And I just, it's something that I just love. I love having seen in our own lives how God has worked for us, has provided for us, has released the resources that we need through each phase of life. And it was just fantastic to hear those stories right at the start of the morning of God doing that. This being a season for you of God releasing just a new measure of faith and opportunity to see his blessing poured out and his provision evident for you as a people. Uh, I thought what was also interesting was that uh, when you were welcoming new people amongst you this morning, that you had an actuary in training um, and you also had, there was somebody else who was an accountancy, yes? Um, one of the things that I love is that when it comes to doing finance in the kingdom, our professional training kind of gets slightly set aside, because as Steve just testified, you know, you lose four giving families in your midst who collectively give a quarter of your church finance, that spells trouble, doesn't it? And yet at the end of the year, the books balance. So many times we have seen situations where we have stepped out in faith, in God, knowing that actually if you stick an accountant on our books, the numbers don't, they don't marry. The, the income is far exceeded by the expenditure. And yet we're here to testify just of how much God has blessed us and, uh, and done stuff. For myself, um, I guess my own sort of journey in giving started back in sort of my mid-teens when I uh, realized that even with what modest income I was getting off caddying at the local golf course, that was what I did with my Saturdays, basically gave me an excuse to just hang out at the golf club all day and then play a few rounds myself in between, uh, and to start tithing that income. And start giving it away, realizing that actually there was a training process in God of putting him first uh, with my finances. Um, my, own, my own sort of journey is somewhat sort of less conventional than, than some. I left school at 18 and uh, I went to work for the church in Worcester, City Church in Worcester, as a uh, schools worker and children's worker. Went on to Bible college. So everyone kind of says to me, you know, what did you do when you were at uni? I, I, I kind of skipped that. And, uh, and have just kind of pursued where God has led. Went into, uh, actually moved from Bible college down here to Oxford, which was really just about further discipleship, uh, coming here to be alongside Mike Beaumont, who has mentored me for many years. Landed a job in sales. And uh, whilst I was there, uh, um, got headhunted. Somebody wanted to offer me twice the package that I was on, but God had called me to Oxford. So I said no, um, because actually the call of God is more important uh, than you know, the best packages that are available there in the workplace. 
uh, moved into a more sort of technical role in IT, uh, and that was great because um, that involved a bit of a boost in my salary, and then after 10 weeks, handed in my notice and took a 50% pay cut to go into pastoral ministry. Um, uh, worked for five years in the church, uh, leading the church in Chipping Norton, uh, Great privilege, uh, one of the joys of our lives, serving the, the church there for a number of years. But after five years, um, felt God say that it was time to release my salary in order to release a full-time youth worker. Um, uh, the money will come from somewhere. Um, and so I went back into uh, employment, sort of secular employment, as it were. And that's where I've been since 2003, uh, working in a mixture of roles in the public sector, Six years ago, got made redundant from that, set up a business, uh, now uh, run uh, my own business, and have continued throughout those last 12, 13 years to be bivocational. So uh, I, I run the business, largely speaking, Monday to Thursday, and then that gives me my Fridays and my weekends um, to, uh, to serve God and, you know, any other evenings and wherever else, uh, and have continued throughout that period to be involved in leading churches, um, was involved in setting up KST uh, and various other things. Oh, and we also have five children. Um, and if anyone wants a test of faith for God's provision, go for five. <laughs> is, do you know what? I'm gonna, I need to try and avoid getting distracted, but... Um, uh, the size of our family is actually something that God spoke about. I remember Steve Thomas, I think, in this room um, talking about, uh, it, it was basically, I can't even remember the specific passage, um, but it was about settling and having families and living as though we were people who lived under the blessing of God and not living small-mindedly in our families. And at that time, we were actually weighing up whether we should stick at three or go four uh, in terms of our kids. Um, and, uh, and anyway, that, that morning, God nailed me and said, no, it's time to go for four. So uh, fortunately, uh, God blessed us with Josiah, who's our number four, and then he surprised us with Karis, who's number five. Uh, but she is just a delight, and, 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 <laughs> and God spoke about uh, her too. So um, this morning, we want to talk about God's provision for us, and I just want to look at sort of three aspects of that. Firstly, a culture of financial insecurity which is the culture in which we live. Secondly, a tale of faithful provision, which is in contrast to the culture in which we live, the story of Scripture. And then thirdly, a people with generous spirits, which is really just about how we respond to what God reveals in his word. So, culture of financial insecurity. It's the economy, stupid, uh, is a quote which is sort of well uh, become well-rehearsed, was actually first practiced in 1992 by campaign strategist James Carville on behalf of the Clinton presidential campaign. 1992? I can't believe it's that long ago. I mean, you know, I, I sort of vaguely remember it, but, uh, you know, that's quite sort of frightening in itself. But in a sense, like most of the last 20, 30 years... That's been the issue for our nation. That's been the issue for our culture. It's about what's going on in the economy. When we look at the referendum debate and, uh, and these last sort of couple of weeks of campaigning, so much of the attention has been focused on what's going on within the economy. Well, if we just make a decision that is based on the economics, then that's probably the right thing to do, isn't it? I mean, 
I'm not saying it's not an issue for me as a businessman, as, a, as an employer, as a pastor with people with you know, jobs in our church and that sort of thing. Um, yes, of course, I'm concerned about aspects of economic health within the nation. Um, I do trust that you are prayerfully engaging with the refer- referendum, by the way. Um, I take just a slight aside. I, I've, I've labored this point to our own folks uh, in Whitney. Um, Please do be praying and prayerfully engaged in the future of our nation through this referendum. It is a key decision, and Christians need to be prayerfully engaged. Um, I think that I've already, vo- I've already voted, actually. I'm out of the country. So I've already uh, submitted um, my postal vote. Um, but I guess I do feel that what I do in prayer is probably far more significant than what I've done at the polls already. And please be engaged in that process. Um, trust on the economy is probably the most definitive metric in the run-up to any of our general elections over the last few cycles. Um, and, and it's not just at the, the sort of national and international level, is it? I mean, there's a huge amount of pressure that we live under as households and as individuals uh, in terms of finance. And I was just, uh, spare me a moment just to depress you and then hopefully lift you out of the depression that I've placed upon you. But um, uh, in a city like Oxford, it's meaningful. The IFS estimate that average student debt is now valued at over £44,000. Uh, great to hear you guys who are getting married. Excellent. Average wedding costs have risen to over £20,000. Don't let that stop you getting married. Please, don't look at the cost and not enter into a covenant relationship that will be fruitful in Christ for you because you think the wedding bill is going to be too much. Don't let finance get in front of God's call in your relationships. Uh, according to HomeTrack, the average house price in Oxford now stands at £393,100. And house price inflation in the top 20 cities in our nation is running at 10.4%, while average wage price inflation runs at 2. We know that that's not, those aren't good figures in terms of uh, a view on our own financial security, our own opportunities to get onto the housing market and all of that sort of thing. Um, We don't have to spend too long looking at the news to realize that... um, Uh, that financial insecurity in our nation is just a big issue. We are constantly reeling from the shocks of big businesses collapsing, financial institutions that are embroiled in scandal. And we, if we are not careful, can inhale the air of financial insecurity that pervades our nation. But I don't want to leave us there. You might be glad to hear. Uh, that, that is the culture in which we reside. That is the culture which pervades our financial press and our, our news websites and all of that sort of thing. But I think we have a choice. I think we have a choice to live in, within the waters of insecurity that pervades our nation or to open ourselves up to something of God's incredible generosity and to choose to live differently in our generation. And I do believe this morning that God is wanting to unlock something of faith for adventure in finance that is going to put you in a place which will at times be scary and at times just be downright crazy and yet to see his provision come.
Because in response to a culture of financial insecurity, Scripture provides us with a tale of faithful provision. Now, you don't have to read very long through Scripture to see that God is a God who provides. So here's a few little headlines for you. In the Garden of Eden, God establishes creation in a, in a provision context. It's all there provided uh, for humanity. Uh, Noah and the ark, God's provision of security uh, and a home for his people. Um, provision in terms of uh, future generations and provision even of, you know, of our children. God provides a son in Isaac for Abraham. And he also provides uh, a means for him when he goes to sacrifice Abraham, uh, goes to sacrifice Isaac. Uh, the whole Exodus story, go and read Exodus of how God leads a people out of slavery in Egypt and provides for them day after day after day with manna from heaven, if you want to know about a God who provides, and water that pours forth from rocks. Yes, water from rocks. This is a God who provides. Thinking of the story of the widow's oil that just uh, is, is there day after day after day. Elijah gets fed by ravens. Uh, Nehemiah's task of rebuilding the city. Um, that's a story that I love um, where there he is. He's in captivity in um, the citadel of Susa. He's cupbearer to the king. God speaks to him about going and restoring the city of Jerusalem whose walls have been broken down and whose gates have been burned with fire. And here he is a servant. How is the servant going to get all of the provision that he needs to reestablish a city? And God opens up the door. God softens the heart of the king, gives him letters uh, so that he can unlock the, um, the timber yards of Lebanon and everything else that he needs in order to see that city re-established. Um, and then we can come into uh, all of the provision that we see through the, the Gospels, feeding 5,000 through uh, five loaves and two fish. Um, even Peter and John are the gate, gate beautiful, silver and gold of I none. What I've got, I give you. In the name of Jesus of Nazareth, rise up, walk. There's just, the, the story of Scripture is a story of great provision. Uh, I want to take us into Genesis chapter 14 um, briefly this morning, just to, to look at a particular passage that I think will help us to land something of this. Uh, I had kind of said to myself, I'm not going to do Melchizedek this morning. Um, but uh, as I went back and was just sort of rereading the story, I felt like I saw something afresh from a passage which is incredibly familiar. I, I think the reason I didn't want to kind of go there is because at various points, I've used this as a sort of text to lean on about tithing. Um, so about giving a tenth of our income to God. And this is, a, this is a story that kind of precedes the receiving of the law at Sinai to Moses. And so we kind of go, well, look, if you want to know that tithing is a principle that precedes law, that's not a, that is a, a statement of grace giving, then go and look here. But I was just reading it and rereading it in its context and saw something of just the adventure that God takes Abraham on in terms of release and generosity in his financial provision. So to set it in context, actually you have to look at what's happened previously in chapter 13. Um, so, well, I mean, you can, you can keep going back and, and read some more context. But in chapter 13, uh, Abram and Lot uh, have been moving around together as two families and they have become numerous. 
they become too numerous to kind of move together as one people. So Abram says to Lot, uh, says, look, we need to determine to go our different ways. Um, You decide which way you want to go. You have the pick of the land. And here's the first challenge, I think, to us in our culture of financial insecurity, that what Abram chooses is to prefer somebody else with financial provision. He sets Lot first, and he says, I'll take whatever's left over, but you choose what's best. And Lot looks out over the valley, down towards the Jordan, sees fertile territory, a place which is presumably going to be far easier uh, to uh, feed herds and harvest any grain or whatever. He says, I'll tell you what, I'll take that land. Abraham says, fine, you go and have the best uh, for you. And he chooses to take the land towards Hebron, much, much harder land uh, to work. Uh, And then in chapter 14... Uh, they've, gone their own, they've gone their separate ways. In chapter 14, Abram suddenly realizes that he's got to step back in to intervene um, because uh, there's a situation that arises where basically there's a territorial battle between nine kings, four arraigned on one side, uh, five on the other, in two, di- in two camps. Um, and basically what happens, first few verses... Chapter 14, the kings of Sodom, Gomorrah, Adma, Zeboim, and Bela uh, lose in that battle, and Lot gets carried off as part of the bounty. He and his family and all of their possessions are taken captive, and they are carried away. Abram finds out about this, and this is the point at which he gets involved. Now, um, <laughs> I kind of sort of, I mean, I've read this a few times, and I sort of thought, you know, this is some sort of fairly petty regional tribal squabble that Abraham gets himself caught up in here. It's considerably more than that. This is nine kings who have, uh, you know, come and sort of fought this thing out. This is effectively kind of north v. south. And when Lot gets carried off into captivity and Abram commits himself to go and recover Lot and his possessions, he has to go on a march of some 160 miles to get himself from Hebron to Hobar, which is up near Damascus. Anyone fancy the march from here to Manchester? That's the distance that, that he goes. And he pursues uh, those who've carried uh, Lot off into captivity. Let me just read to you, um, starting at verse 8. Then the, um, uh, da, 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 da. Uh, yeah, I'm going to jump in the text there. The uh, king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoor, marched out and drew up their battle lines in the valley of Sidim against uh, I should have started after the list of names, shouldn't I? Uh, Kedorlaomer, uh, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goim, uh, Amraphel, king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Elisar, four kings against five. Now the valley of Sidim was full of tar pits, and when the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some of the men fell into them, and the rest fled into the hills. The four kings seized all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all the food, they, uh, then they went away. They also carried off Abram's nephew, Lot, and his possessions since he was living in Sodom. One who had escaped came and reported to Abram the Hebrew. Now, um, now Abram was living near the great trees of Mamre, the Amorite, a brother of Eshol and Anah, all of whom were allied with Abram. When Abram heard that his relative had been taken captive, he called out 318 trained men born in his household and went in pursuit as far as Dan. 
During the night, Abram divided his men to attack them, and he routed them, pursuing them as far as Hobar, north of Damascus. He recovered all the goods and brought back his relative lot and his possessions, together with the women and the other children, other people. After Abram returned from defeating Kedorlaomer and the kings allied with him, the king of Sodom came out to meet him in the valley of Shava. That is the king's valley. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of the Most High, and he blessed Abram, saying, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who delivered your enemies into your hands. Then Abram gave a tenth of everything. The king of Sodom said to Abram, uh, Give me your people and give your goods and keep the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have raised my hand to the Lord, the God most high, creator of heaven and earth, and have taken an oath that I will not accept, that I will accept nothing belonging to you, not even a thread or the thong of a sandal, so that you will never be able to say, I made Abram rich. I will accept nothing but what my men have eaten and the share that belongs to those men who went with, with me, to Ana, Eshol, and Mamre. Let them have their share. Um, so he's gone off on this, on this march. He's recovered Lot uh, and some of their possessions. And then he's uh, headed back south. Um, when he's within 20 miles of home, he hits Jerusalem. And, uh, and they're on their way further back. So, I don't know, they've got another sort of one or two days marching until they arrive back in Hebron. And when they get to Jerusalem, the king of Jerusalem, king of Salem, Melchizedek, who is a priest king, and there's a whole load of stuff to unpack there that we're not going to get into right now, comes out and he brings bread and wine out for Abram. And he, um, and he brings Abram this blessing. Uh, it says, blessed be Abram by God most high, creator of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high who delivered your enemies into your hands. And what's Abram's response? His response is simply to give. His response is generosity. Uh, now, I don't know what you'd feel like, you know, when you're sort of, um, I think you've just got to kind of put yourself in, his, in Abram's shoes. At this point, you've already done the march of 160 miles north as far as Damascus. You've done 140 miles back. Do the maths. You've done 300 miles of marching. You've also been to battle in order to rescue those who had been taken away as possession. You're a day, day and a half from home and thinking probably about putting your feet up. And uh, the king of Salem comes out with a gift and a blessing. I might have just been a little bit kind of wanting to get home at this point, not wanting to engage in the spiritual dynamic that's happening here at Jerusalem, not wanting to actually put myself out there in terms of generosity, but to just think, do you know what? Can I just get back to my home, to my wives? Abram, not, not me, I'm, I've only got one, just before, in case anyone takes the, you know, this the wrong way, especially on the recording. Um, but Abram's response is of overflow. Abram's response is of generosity. Abram receives the blessing that Melchizedek brings to him and says, and, and his immediate response is just to give a tenth. 
Now, I don't quite know how much a tenth was here, but he's got 318 men, and they've been and they've routed, uh, uh, how many kings are we on? Four kings uh, that have gone to the north. I don't know how much they brought back down south with them, but they were probably carrying a fair amount. And his response is to give. His response is not to seek his own comfort. His response is to overflow with generosity. So here's the second challenge to our culture of fear and insecurity. There's a principle here we call tithing, giving 10%. Um, 10% 10% is a good starter. Let's start, uh, start at 10%. Anyone want to raise me? I hear 10%, 10%. Anyone want to go uh, higher than 10%? I mean, there's a, but there's a principle here about generosity and just letting the overflow of everything that God has done for us pour back to him, in not only in our, the praise of our lips, but also in what flows out from our wallets, from our finances. Um, the response not to live protectionist lives, not to live pres- for our own self-preservation and to, to preserve what we have worked hard for. You know, I'm sure that most of you go out to work and you work hard and you probably work long hours and, that, uh, and, and actually, you know, we, we all do, but there's something here about the spirit of, of generosity in the kingdom that causes us not to look after what we have received and not to hold on to what God has blessed us with and not to preserve and not to protect, but to overflow and to give and to bless. And that's what Abraham does here. And to see a release of financial resource and to let God be the one who provides. But here's the bit that I'd not really kind of seen in this passage. And that's what happens after the whole interaction with Melchizedek. You see, the king of Sodom comes to Abraham and he says, give me the people and keep the goods for yourself. I'll take those who are part of our household, a part of our city, those who were taken off into captivity. But I tell you what, Abraham, you've done a good thing here. You have been a blessing to us. You have gone and led the forces against those kings that took our people off into captivity. You keep the spoils of war. I think if I were him at this point, I'd see that as a fair settlement. You know? Um, Yes, I led the armies off. We've just done all of that marching. I, I tell you what, okay. I'll graciously be the recipient of all of this resource. And Abram's response is, I don't want any of it. What does he say? He says, I have raised my hand to the Lord God most high, creator of heaven and earth, and I have taken an oath that I will accept nothing belonging to you. Not even a thread or a throng of a sandal so that you will never be able to say, I made Abram rich. Um, actually, I, was, I read this, um, uh, there's a different translation that I read this in. Um, and when it talks about, it says, I've raised my hands to the Lord, the God most high. Who's got a translation that says the possessor of heaven and earth? A few of you? Okay, just to show that I'm not talking wildly here. Um, I think that's the, the latest NIV actually calls, calls God the possessor 
of heaven and earth. Abram's perspective is that he has aligned himself with God as his provider. And he therefore is not going to receive anything from the king of Sodom or anyone else in order to see his family secure and his place established. Because there is one who establishes Abram and it is God, the Lord Most High, the possessor of heaven and earth. That is who gives him the blessing. That is who provides for his family. That is who he receives from everything that he needs to walk in the call of God for him, his family and his household. And so he chooses to say, I'm not going to take any of the spoils of war. They might even be rightfully mine as having led the forces up to the north. But I don't want anyone to say that I took what I've got from the king of Sodom or from anywhere else. Abram's house is supplied by God. Now, for those of you who know your scripture, turn over to chapter 15. What happens next? God makes a covenant with Abram. Probably, I mean, talk about receiving the mother of all promises. For Abram who says, I've put my hand into God's hand. I'm not putting my trust in human and worldly systems for the provision for my house and for my people. But I am putting my hand into God's hand and trusting him for my provision. I'm trusting him for my succession. I'm trusting him for everything that I need to furnish my people and my household with their needs. God comes and meets him in the most profound way in chapter 15. And binds himself in covenant to Abram and says, I'm going to be the one who's going to give you successes that you cannot count. I'm going to be the one who's going to provide for you a land that will stretch beyond what you could possibly imagine. If we will be a people who will choose not to live under the scourge of financial insecurity of our culture. But who will choose to put our hand in the hand of a God who again and again and again has demonstrated himself to be faithful, to provide for his people. And who we can trust to meet the needs of our household and every, everything that we need for the, the jobs that we've already heard about, for the release of finance, for a youth worker, whatever it is. We will unlock promise. That flows from heaven. So how do we enter into that? Well I think the answer for us. Is that we need to be a people with generous spirits. Every time we as a family. Have found ourselves with our backs against the wall. In one way or another. In terms of our finances. The answer for us has never been. To tighten our belts and save. I'm not saying, please don't hear me wrong here, there is a good place for financial stewardship. It's great to have trustees recognized within us. They they serve us well. Um, I sat on the trustees for a few years myself. It's great to have those who have the gifting and experience to help us manage well the resources that God has blessed us with. But whenever we have found ourselves in a position where we've just needed to see a release financially, the answer for us has not been to budget better. Um, Let me stray into a couple of stories, if I may. 
Um, I, when we were first looking to buy a house, I was working as a pastor. Um, as I said, I'd already taken a 50% pay cut in order to take um, a role within the church. Um, my wife had just qualified, was working for the NHS, and we felt God speak to us about buying a house. Um, so uh, we went and we started talking to some estate agents. The first estate agent that we talked to, we sat, we sat down and he said, you know, tell me what you're looking for. And so we told him what we were looking for. And basically, we spec'd a house according to what we felt God had given us in terms of, well, we need a base. You know, for us, it's always been about a base for ministry. Um, so we need a house in which there's enough space that people can come and people can go and we can have meetings and, and we can provide a home for those who uh, find themselves in need and all of that sort of thing. And, uh, and so he said to us, oh, great. He said, how much are you looking to spend? And so we'd done the maths and he laughed. I mean, he literally, the estate agent literally laughed in our face. Uh, and uh, and I said, well, you're, you're not going to find that. So we went away and we looked at the figures and we said, what do we need to do? And we prayed and we'd been diligently saving and we were only able to save just a very small amount because of our, because of our incomes. And the first thing that God said to us was give what you've got. So um, the next, I think it was the next celebration offering actually, um, we went and we put our entire deposit in the offering. We said, God, if this is going to happen, it's going to happen because you release resource. And uh, then somebody said to us, they said, oh, we've seen this. We've seen a house. It would be a great house for you guys. It would be amazing. And we went and we looked at it and we saw it. And, we, and, and you know what? It fitted the bill and it actually fitted the budget that we'd said to, uh, to the estate agent, and the estate agent told us that we wouldn't be able to get. The only problem was we no longer had a deposit. <laughs> so we determined that we were going to go and take a look at it anyway in faith. Uh, so we booked a viewing. We went to see it on the Friday, and, uh, and it was exactly what we wanted. We only looked at one house. Um, and, uh, and we went away, and we said, well, you know, God is just going to have to provide um, on the Saturday, a family member offered to furnish us with a deposit 10 times what we'd put in the offering. Um, uh, so um, we then, um, uh, what happened then? On, I think that on the, on the Monday, um, we uh, went to talk to a mortgage company. Actually, we'd already, been, we'd already been declined the amount that we'd want to borrow from one mortgage company. The mortgage advisor had told us, he said, look, you know, I don't think we're going to be able to get you a mortgage for the amount that you want. You're going to have to talk, about, talk to family about being guarantors and all of that sort of stuff. Uh, so anyway, I just kind of, um, in faith, went and spoke to another mortgage company, and they gave, us, they, they gave us an agreement in principle on the Monday morning. On the Monday afternoon, we were able to go back with an offer. And it was turned down. <laughs> it was turned down because it still wasn't enough. It was, still, it was too much below the asking price. Um, and, uh, and so, you know, we were somewhat frustrated by that. I think it was two days later. Um, we, were just, uh, we were just chatting with somebody in the church. Um, and uh, we said, oh, you know, we've seen this place. And it just doesn't look like it's going to open up for us. Uh, and they said to us on the spot, they said, look, we'll give you the £2,000 that you need to get over the line. Um, so we were able to buy that house. We had absolutely nothing to be able to do any of the work that it needed because it was in a bit of a state of dilapidation. Um, but that was okay. We were just delighted that we got the keys to our first place and God had provided. And then in the week before we moved into that property, you know, we were just saying, God, you know, it'd be really nice. It'd be really nice to be able to just stick a lick of paint on the walls and do some stuff there. 
And God just opened up the doors again. And for seven days in a row, we received money. Literally, day after day after day, from a whole variety of sources. And on the morning that we were due to complete, uh, we went to the DIY stores with £1,400 in our pockets to go and buy what we needed to get off the ground. Our experience is just that the secret to living in greater freedom is actually generosity. The secret to living in provision is to put God first with our finances. Um, let me just tell you another story from, uh, from much more recently. Um, we made the move to Whitney uh, a couple of years or so ago, and uh, that's been a big, another big financial step for us. Um, uh, <laughs> um, Whitney is considerably more expensive than Morton in Marsh, where we were living. Uh, we've had to double our mortgage in order to, uh, to make the move. Uh, and then we've got the great privilege of putting our children into the King's School, which means we also have to meet the school fees. Um, so our expenses have just kind of gone through the roof at a time when I've got a fledgling business that we're, we're looking to develop. Um, and so it's been a bit of a challenge for us. And then, um, and then last year, it was just, uh, we, we suddenly hit a dip in our finances in the church. And I was looking at it, and we were praying about it as an eldership team. We committed ourselves weekly to meet together, 6.30 on a Monday morning, to pray for breakthrough. And uh, we're praying about it. And then one Sunday morning, I was just stood there at the front of the church, and I felt God say, go and look at your own finances. And you know when kind of that, it was like, oh. And, and it was like, I knew what the answer was. I didn't know why the answer was what it was going to be, but I knew what the answer was. So I went back, I looked over two and a half years of our finances, and I found an enormous hole in our tithe. I mean, it was, basically, it's partly to do, I, I now, you know, sort of take dividends through the business rather than taking salary and all of that sort of stuff, and it all kind of made the whole thing a little bit complicated, but I had, had really messed up in terms of our tithe, and there's this big hole, and... Uh, and happily, we were sat on that balance in our bank account because there's some work that we wanted to do on our house. It's like, oh, okay, work on the house versus, versus making up what's missing in our tithe. Chas and I talked about it. It's a no-brainer, isn't it? We've got to put God first. Um, and so, um, uh, so we put uh, basically all of our savings back in, made up what was missing in our tithe. Uh, and we went, oh, well, you know, whatever we want to do on the house, that'll have to wait for another few years, won't it? And then in the course of the next three weeks, um, we, uh, once I, I received, um, uh, basically it was some kind of contract work that I'd done um, through my business that I wasn't actually expecting to get any payment from, and all of a sudden, God just released it. Um, that made about a third of the amount. Um, then we received an inheritance that we weren't expecting that met about the next third of the amount. And then somebody, um, gave us, I mean, just an incredibly generous gift. They didn't know what was going on in our finances and that wiped off. In fact, it got to the point where I was like, I suddenly thought, God has this, has this married up? Um, and I went away and I did the sums across everything that we'd given and the, and the three gifts, um, and we ended up 20 pounds in the black because we put God first in our finances. I did kind of say to God, oh, you know, you could have showed your generosity a little bit more than 20 quid, couldn't you? Uh, but the key issue was God would not be in debt to us. And every, everything that we want, you know, the, the balancing was him just saying, you put me first, I will make sure that your provision 
uh, is in place. So um, the answer to, to us, and I need to finish here, um, finding our freedom in God is, uh, is to be a people of generosity. And not, not to, uh, as I say, you know, for us it's never been about tightening our belts. It's always been about seeing release. Um, let me just read to you a few verses from Malachi chapter 3. They'll be familiar to you. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will man rob God? Yet you're robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and your contributions. You're cursed with a curse for you're robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. I'm not suggesting that anyone here is robbing God. I'm just saying that there's an answer to our financial freedom and it's to make sure that we honor God with our finances first. That we put him, he says, it says here, he says, put me to the test in this. You've got some freedom to say, God, we're going to trust you with our finances. And we're going to put you first and see what he will do. And I really, feel, I really believe, coming here this morning, that there are some adventures in God for some of you in finance and the whole area of finance. In January 2013, I was at the Salt and Light Leaders Conference in Teesside. Dave Richards uh, was speaking on the final morning uh, of that conference. And he was talking about being available and mobile for God. And he said, there are some of you, he said, who just need to come down and kneel at the front and put your wallet and your keys on the altar. Um, and... I felt I needed to respond to that word. I didn't see a move happening for us at that time. We were quite well established in Morton where we were looking to plant. And there were some things that God was opening up for us. And um, actually, you know, there's some reasonably exciting things that God was doing. But I just felt God speak to me and say, it's time to go and put your wallet and your keys on the altar again. When I looked up at the end of that ministry time, sat uh, kneeling next to me on my left were Matt Biddlecombe and John Gridley. Um, some, many of you will not know who they are. Matt Burdicombe leads the church in Carterton. John Gridley uh, was working alongside us in leading the church plant in Morton. Within a year, all three of us were on the move. We were, uh, we were leaving Morton to go and lead the church in Whitney. John and Jen, who'd been serving with us, were leaving Morton to go and work alongside Matt and Anna in leading the church in Carterton. Matt and Anna were repositioning themselves for a particular part of town that they felt God had called them to, and so they were making a move. If you want an adventure with God in your finances, I want to encourage you this morning, I'm going to invite you to do the same, to come and kneel at the front and to put your wallet where your mouth is. Not literally, that would be silly. To come and place your wallet and kneel before God and say, God, we want to have an adventure with you with our finances. And it may be that right now you're in a situation where, you know, you've got a job situation you need to see released. And it's about seeing release in your present circumstances. I just warn you, there's a kind of health warning here, that if you do so, God might just take you at your word. 
And he might just open up an adventure for you that you're not quite ready for. But it's going to be all right. Actually, it's going to be great. It's going to be great fun. And you're going to see the blessing of heaven pour into your life. And you're going to see God release a whole load of resource that you never thought was possible. I hear keys at the ready. I'm not necessarily asking for your keys. I'm only asking for wallets. But if you want to shut your keys down as well, uh, then, uh, <laughs> then do it. Um, but please, come on. Um, band, if you want to come up and probably just lead us in terms of a, a song to conclude. Um, but if you want to come and kneel down the front and just say, God, we're going to put you first. We're going to put you first with our finances. We're going to put you first with our resources. We're going to put you first with everything that we've got. I want you to just come and kneel down at the front here. Or sit if your kneeling's not an option for you. Lord Jesus, I just I want to pray. Lord, for a release that is coming to this church of a new freedom financially. Lord, and it starts with individuals surrendering themselves to you and saying, we're going to put you first. Lord, and we're going to choose to be a generous people who doesn't live according to the culture of fear and financial insecurity that pervades this city and pervades our nation and pervades our world, but puts their hands in your hand and trusts you, Lord God, for your provision above everything else. Who with Abraham says, I am not going to receive anything from the king of Sodom, but I am going to put my hand into the hand of God who is the possessor of heaven and earth. And Lord, I want to pray that these people are your possession. These people are your precious children. And I want to just pray for a release now of financial provision and blessing to pervade their lives and to pervade this church. Lord, we've already heard the testimonies this morning that are starting to roll over about an upgrade of grace and favor. And it's interesting that the place that we're starting to see that is in jobs and is in finances and in your provision for our living. Lord, I want to pray, God, for a release of more of that into each household, into each marriage, into each family. Lord, and in so doing, Father, I want to pray that you would cause the doors of heaven to be opened up and for financial blessing to pour into this church in Jesus' name. Lord, we've heard you say or we've heard them say already this morning of the things that they are asking you for, of one particular need that is for a youth worker. Lord, I do believe that there is going to be considerably more that you are going to call them to stretch for you in faith for. And Lord, I want to pray that right now you'd start to release the faith for more. The faith to go beyond what they currently see. The faith to reach considerably beyond their current vision and aspirations where there is a resource demand that quite frankly is ridiculous and to enter into a place of faith to receive 
all that you want to bless them with and all that you want to unlock through them. And Lord, I want to pray for adventures to be released now in Jesus' name. I want to pray that there will be hilarious adventures of faith that are released this morning in Jesus' name.